Getting Better Healthcare is brought to you in part by Leo Pharma. Every American is acutely aware of the issues surrounding our healthcare system. We know miracles can happen, but we find ourselves bombarded by conflicting information and are uncertain of what and whom we can trust. We have some of the best medical care in the world for those who can afford it. Incredible new drugs that change people's lives but can be very costly. Many of the best doctors the world has ever seen, but not all are perfect. That's why Dr. Steve Feldman created the show, Getting Better Healthcare, to help walk us through the labyrinth, helping us understand how to take better care of ourselves and to better understand the challenges, issues, controversies, and complexities of our healthcare system as it exists and as it could be. For better health care and a better health care system, listen to the doctor. Now, here's Steve. Welcome to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman, founder of the drscore.com physician rating website. On today's program, we're going to be discussing the role of pharmacists in our health care system. You know the pharmacist who works in the corner drugstore and helps give you your medication. Well, the role of pharmacists is much more than that, and it's evolving. To speak to us about that, we have Dr. Barry Carter. Dr. Carter is Professor of Pharmacy Science and Practice in the College of Pharmacy and Professor of uh, Family Medicine in the School of Medicine at the University of Iowa. Dr. Carter's uh, work includes studies of physician-pharmacist partnerships that help patients keep their blood pressure under better control. Dr. Carter, thank you so much for being on the show today. You're welcome. You're trained as a pharmacist, uh, have a doctor in pharmacy. Tell me, how are, who are pharmacists? How are they trained? Well, um, uh, for the last uh, 20 years or so, um, the vast majority of pharmacists, and now all pharmacists, are trained at the doctoral level. Um, which is a, a six-year program, six-year collegiate program, uh, four years in pharmacy school, pre, two years of pre-pharmacy. And um, um, approximately uh, 25% of uh, pharmacists go on and do postgraduate residencies or fellowships, primarily residencies. Um, most of those residencies are one year in length. Um, some choose to do two years of residency, um, and those residencies are primarily clinical-based um, in hospitals and clinics, um, working directly with physicians and other members of the healthcare team. Um, and um, so that kind of is a brief description of, uh, of uh, pharmacy education today yeah. and training. So, so it's a minimum of six years after high school, as I understood what you were saying. That's maybe, correct. Maybe eight years. That's correct. Wow. And you mentioned the word team. So pharmacists are largely operating on their own or largely operating as a part of a team? Well, um, most uh, people would be familiar with the, their community pharmacists or pharmacists in, you know, in an independent community pharmacy or chain pharmacy. Um, so those, those folks would be different than the, the vast majority of folks that we've studied recently in our studies. Um, the, the people that I'm talking about, um, the pharmacists that I'm talking about, uh, would primarily be employed uh, in some capacity to work in a primary care office um, or uh, in a hospital, uh, in a clinical environment. 
um, our research is primarily focused on primary care, so I'll kind of focus in that particular area. these pharmacists, uh, almost by definition, would have postgraduate training, residency, or fellowship training. Um, many work in uh, clinics in VA hospitals, uh, managed care organizations, uh, academic health sciences centers, uh, and a few, uh, and ever increasing numbers of, of private physician offices. Uh, but that is still uh, relatively uh, uncommon. In some settings, uh, the pharmacists are somewhat more autonomous. Uh, for instance, there might be a, a pharmacist-managed anticoagulation clinic or lipid clinic or blood pressure clinic in a VA, um, uh, where uh, through scopes of practice uh, approved by the medical staff, the pharmacist can uh, see patients, suggest therapy, order INRs, or what have you. Um, Probably the vast majority of, of pharmacists working in primary care, however, um, are working in a more collaborative approach in teams. So in, in a managed care organization, um, internal medicine clinic, let's say, or a family medicine uh, residency training program or something like that, um, where for the most part they're, uh, they're not uh, at all practicing independently, um, but in a team-based care approach, um, which is a major focus now uh, of the discussions about the patient-centered medical home and team-based care. Um, and so many of these folks and, the, and all the folks that we've studied would be in that kind of environment. So it sounds like there's a, a broad array. There's the pharmacist everybody's familiar with in the drugstore, um, specialized pharmacists actually treating patients and in a, in a VA-like setting, uh, you know, I'm uh, familiar with pharmacists who've chosen careers in managed care, helping decide what drugs are on um, the approved list, um, making decisions about what, um, what what's included in the uh, compendium of drugs that are that are covered by a health plan. That's correct. Okay, so. The what are the ways in, in in which what are the things that the pharmacists do as part of the team? How do they help the team function? Well, um, of course, it depends on uh, on the particular setting involved. Um, if and the mission uh, and the mission of that uh, medical office and team. So if it's if it's more of a um, managed care organization or more private practice kind of environment, um, the, the major focus would be to um, assist with complex medication-related problems. So patients on large numbers of medications, um, where there could be lots of drug interactions, um, where the patient may have multiple chronic conditions that are difficult to achieve our goals of therapy, um, where patients may be having adverse reactions, or patients may be um, uh, not taking their medications as, as we'd like them to uh, and, and have uh, adherence, medication adherence problems. So um, the, the pharmacists in these capacities would pro- probably be much more of an, in a consulting capacity where patients are referred to them um, to, to deal with these kind of issues. Uh, the pharmacist then may either, again, depending on the, the mission of that office and how it's set up, uh, may independently make some adjustments, 
or may simply come up with a care plan that they recommend to the, the patient's doctor for the doctor to then uh, implement. One of the things we spend a lot of time talking about on the show is the different groups of people who are involved in healthcare and how they'll often um, have conflicts among each other. What we've talked about so far are well-functioning teams of people who are all who all realize their shared commitment to um, to patients' health and well-being. Um, but I get the sense that, if not presently, at least in the past. Maybe some doctors would not have wanted a pharmacist telling them what to do. Um, can, you, can you comment on that? Oh, sure. And, and um, you know, depending on the environment, that that's, uh, can still be an issue in some places. Um, I think that the, the biggest source uh, of that type of conflict is when the, the two professionals don't, don't interact closely together or they're not um, – working in the same uh, practice setting. So the classic example would be, you know, a doctor in private practice uh, interfacing with a pharmacist in a community pharmacy. Uh, they may know each other, but their levels of, of uh, communication and trust uh, are certainly not as high as someone who's, you know, uh, working together on a, on a daily basis in the same office. And so if that pharmacist, you know, from some distance, uh, uh, identify some problems and make some recommendations. Um, the physician may be much less likely to 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 want to accept those. In some cases, that's appropriate because, of course, in that distant kind of a relationship, many times the pharmacist um, has to try to to operate uh, with with less than optimal information. Um, yes, i.e., they usually don't have the medical record. Whereas a pharmacist working on the team in a primary care office would have access to all that diagnostic and laboratory information. So, so uh, and, and oftentimes um, when a pharmacist, uh, for whatever reason, is placed into a, an operating clinic that, uh, let's say, has not had a pharmacist before, um, some of those physicians, uh, of course, perhaps trained with pharmacists. Uh, they may have rounded with them during their residency in an academic health center, so they're really aware of of uh, how pharmacists contributed, you know, on inpatient rounds um, or, or what have you. So they may be very familiar with that. But not all the physicians uh, um, may have encountered that kind of a relationship. And uh, in my experience, you know, sometimes they don't know quite um, what to think of a pharmacist or, or how to utilize a pharmacist in their office. But usually within about six months, um, those relationships um, and trust begin to develop. Physicians begin to understand what the pharmacists can contribute with regards to complex therapy, uh, complex pharmacokinetic, pharmacodynamic relationships that that uh, pharmacists spend a great deal of time learning about. Um, and then the relationship develops and and solidifies. So. Um, it, it really boils down to familiarity and trust, and, and sometimes it just takes some time for that to develop. Yeah. You know, I, I'm a practicing physician. I have a very busy practice. You know, I don't need additional hassles. And when I write for a patient who's got some problem in their mouth to put some ointment in their mouth that, you know, according to the package insert, it says don't use in the mouth, and then the pharmacist hmm. tells the patient don't do this, or if I tell a patient take this medicine and get some sun and the 
you know, because they really need it. And I, like you say, I have the medical record. I really understand the details of what's going on. And the pharmacist tells them, you know, this says, don't use this and go out in the sun. And, you know, and I get a call about it. I am extremely appreciative and bend over backwards to encourage the pharmacist to give me that information in the future because I know that every once in a while somebody's going to misread my handwriting or I'll just accidentally make a slip and prescribe the wrong dose of methotrexate. And when that happens, I want the pharmacist to call me. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, exactly. And, and uh, you know, the idea that you would ever try to... Um, um, fault somebody for communicating their concerns, I think is you're, you're, you're creating a risky, a risky work environment. So all the better that if there's ever any question, you know, these folks should be communicating with each other. Yeah, I agree. Well, um, you're listening to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. We're speaking today with Dr. Barry Carter. He's a professor of pharmacy science and practice in the College of Pharmacy and faculty uh, professor in the Department of Family Medicine in the School of Medicine at the University of Iowa. Uh, Dr. Carter, you've been doing research on pharmacists working closely with physicians to help patients have better outcomes. Tell our listeners a little about it. Yes, um, our research is primarily focused in the area of high blood pressure. Um, We know from uh, national statistics that um, only about half the people who have high blood pressure in this country uh, have their blood pressure controlled to the goals that we'd, we'd like to achieve to uh, reduce heart attacks and strokes and other complications of high blood pressure. And, and so um, our research really has focused on a, a very high-need area uh, involving high blood pressure. Um, we also know that uh, in recent years that in order to get to those goals, it's, it's requiring ever more uh, complex blood pressure regimens. Uh, most patients require at least, at least two uh, medications to control their blood pressure, and it's not at all unusual for someone to need four uh, medications to control their blood pressure. And how we get there can be complicated and tedious and take a lot of time and a lot of patient education. And in our current healthcare system, uh, as it's designed right now, physicians uh, frequently have very little time to spend with a lot of that patient education and multiple dosage titrations uh, for complex medication regimens. And in addition, the patients that they see very rarely just have high blood pressure. They have multiple other chronic conditions, and uh, the primary care physician is trying to deal with all of these uh, problems in a very short time frame. And so our research is looking at, again, team-based care to see if, um, in this case, pharmacists can assist physicians. Uh, these pharmacists, as I mentioned, are located in that doctor's office. Um, these pharmacists are employed uh, sometimes full-time in the office. Sometimes uh, they are uh, partially funded by the office and their full-time employment, let's say, maybe in a college of pharmacy. Uh, but the pharmacist's role there is usually twofold or threefold. Um, oftentimes they're there for, to provide physician education, particularly if there's uh, physician residents involved in that office, um, as well as providing uh, direct patient care. And so our research has looked at physician-pharmacist collaborative models to improve blood pressure control. And in this case, 
the pharmacist, uh, all of the patients that enroll in our studies, uh, their blood pressure is not controlled when they when they enter the study. And the pharmacist does a, a visit to assess the reasons that the blood pressure is not controlled. Let me, let me stop you for one, one second. You, I may have missed something. I think you said the pharmacist plays three roles, physician education, direct patient care. Yeah, and I guess that direct patient care could be divided into, uh, to make it three, uh, either patient education uh, and or, in this case, direct patient management and medication therapy management. Okay, very good. Thank you. Yes, you bet. Um, so after that pharmacist makes the assessment, um, it could be a whole host of things that are the reason for the lack of blood pressure control. Uh, we oftentimes think that it, um, it's probably the patient is not taking their medication correctly or they're missing doses. That, that was my first thought, and, and I was really surprised to read your work that, it was, that, that, there, was a, that there was another major issue going on. There is, but it's important to, to realize that we're looking at a, a somewhat skewed population of patients. So um, our patients are patients that um, continue to go see their doctor. They they are they stay within the healthcare system. In other words, um, if you look nationally uh, at whether you're talking about blood pressure or cholesterol or whatever, there's a large percentage of patients who uh, some some studies will say within a year half the people will stop taking a new medication. Um, but those many of those people or most of those people are not going to see their doctor regularly. So just sort of by definition, the way we identify and recruit patients into our studies that we're looking at, these patients are um, more likely to be on their medication and, and not have discontinued it. So we're looking at a subset of, of patients that are less likely to be missing lots and lots of doses. Um, in our studies, um, our patients' uh, problems with medication here, that probably only affects about 20% of them. Um, but you'll find other populations that are much, much, much higher than that. But it's just, it's, I think, in large measure, just the different population that we're studying. Um, the biggest issue that we've identified and that nationally uh, has come to the forefront uh, is that the medication regimen is not intensive enough. Um, and the, the term for that oftentimes in the medical literature is a term called clinical inertia. In other words, the patient's into the office today, the blood pressure is still rather high, uh, but nothing has changed in their regimen. Now, there could be a whole host of reasons for that. Um, it, uh, again, it goes back to many times the physician is dealing with maybe other critical, more pressing issues, and blood pressure gets uh, shoved to the side. Um, it could be because the patient is very close to achieving their goal and the difficulties and cost of adding another medication and the time that would take that physician uh, to re-educate the patient about the need for that medication, um, the physician may make a choice that uh, just don't want to worry about that today. Let's just keep trying uh, what we're doing and hopefully it'll get better. Uh, but many times it doesn't and blood pressure stays uh, out of control sometimes for months or years. So that's the bigger problem that we've identified. And just by having, in this case, the pharmacist very focused on this um, um, and by very specific recommendations for uh, proper pharmacologic treatment of high blood pressure, um, we've been able to achieve very high blood pressure control rates um, with that particular intervention. So there is some of it that is involving 
uh, additional patient education and uh, advice on improving their medication adherence for that subset of patients that are having problems, forgetting or whatever. Um, but most of it is involving intensifying the therapy, adding more medications, or increasing the dose. Do I remember right um, from your work that there are guidelines for how um, blood pressure should be treated and that in part the pharmacist was helping making sure that the guidelines were being followed? That's correct. The national guidelines um, that uh, we follow in the United States uh, or, or many folks follow in the United States uh, are the, the Joint National Committee guidelines. Uh, there have been seven of those reports. Um, we call them the JNC uh, seven guidelines. Um, and those guidelines um, provide guidance to all types of providers on detection, evaluation, and treatment of high blood pressure. There are, there are analogous guidelines for cholesterol and, and uh, diabetes and things like that. But um, it's a panel of experts who've been brought together to review the literature to determine you know, what seems to work best on, on treating high blood pressure. So if it's a question of following guidelines, would a, a robo-pharmacist have done just as well? I mean, or did you, did, do you need a human to inject some level of, um, of human judgment into the process, or maybe hand-holding? I'm not sure which. By robo, you mean like alerts, um, or uh, where the physician would get some some uh, acknowledgement uh, and and uh, maybe a link on their computer or something like that. Those have been tried, and they are somewhat effective. Um, but in in many studies that have done this, to kind of give you a, a feel for um, the degree of difference. Um, so we measure blood pressure, um, and one of the key measurements that we follow is the, the systolic blood pressure. When that's, the heart is that, pumping. Yeah. Right, how hard the heart's pumping, and that's the top number. Everybody knows when they get their blood pressure checked, they got a top number, a high number, and a, and a bottom number. So the systolic blood pressure is that top number, um, and we've learned over the years that that's the more important one to focus on. So... Uh, so let's say somebody who has high blood pressure, their top number is 150, and we want to get it down below 140, which uh, is the case for most people if they don't have diabetes or chronic kidney disease. So we need to, we need to reduce it about 10 millimeters of mercury. Um, so by those alerts and mechanisms and expert uh, feedback on computer systems, Studies have found that those might uh, work by l assisting physicians to lower systolic blood pressure two or three millimeters of mercury. Well, so, not very much. But oh. it, but in a huge population, it's it's you know meaningful, it's, huh? it's it's meaningful. It's probably okay. clinically meaningful. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the team-based care approach um, that we've utilized has been found to, depending on the study, lower it between eight and ten millimeters of mercury. So four or five-fold greater effect. Um, and if you look at, there's a whole host of ways that you can try to improve blood pressure control. Physician education, giving lectures, patient education, um, alerts, reminders to the physicians. Um, there's a whole host of ways that you can do that. But consistently, study after study has shown the most potent way to do that is team-based care. Um, and of that, um, our research has shown the most potent is, is uh, utilizing a pharmacist in this capacity. Amazing. All right. Um, 
What do you see happening in the future with pharmacists as part of the team? Well, uh, going back to the patient-centered medical home, which uh, all of the major certainly primary care physician specialties have endorsed, and there's a lot of features in the patient-centered medical home that we don't have time today to talk about uh, that improve patient access. Uh, For instance, you know, electronic medical records and patients can see parts of their records and they can uh, uh, schedule their own office appointments. Those are all key concepts in in making a more patient-friendly, patient-centered medical home. But one of the key features of the patient-centered medical home is the concept of team-based care. It's a concept that family medicine has endorsed since its inception back in the late 60s, early 70s, that, you know, physicians being the team leader um, uh, can delegate uh, various responsibilities, whether it's to a nutritionist, to a social worker, to a nurse, to a pharmacist, depending on what the patient-specific needs happen to be, and that the the team, you know, communicates very closely uh, together uh, to optimize that patient's care. Um, so the only thing that's really slowing us down for adopting that broadly in this country, in my opinion, is really reimbursement and payment strategies. So in places where payment for your salary is not an issue, like the VA, this is widespread. For places uh, like uh, staff model managed care organizations, the Kaiser Permanentes of the world, the group health of this world in Seattle, this is commonplace um, because those patients, uh, uh, or I should say those providers, are on salary, and the health plan gets paid just a capitated rate um, for, for each patient. But in the fee-for-service world, where most of our patients are and most physicians practice, we don't have uh, a business model or a stream where even if a physician wanted a pharmacist in their office, that they would, would be able to, to hire them. We just don't have those mechanisms. There are now, um, in some of the health reform legislation, um, at least some vehicles that could provide some of these uh, services, but the exact uh, payment stream mechanisms have not all been worked out. So it's, it's still a little up in the air as to, to uh, you know, how well and how fast this, this could be adopted. I think, uh, I believe, that if, um, if health care continues to move uh, rapidly in the patient-centered medical home, um, I, I think it will become much more commonplace. Um, and, I, and I also think that you'll, I mean, many people who've looked at this for, and I'm talking about health care in general and team-based care more specifically for the last 30 years, um, would say that with regards to pharmacy, I think what we will probably see will be uh, a somewhat of a shift um, to pharmacists practicing in these kind of team-based care uh, strategies and um, much more utilization of things like robotics, um, and other strategies to fill prescriptions, which are already being used in a lot of places, again, like the VA and managed care. Um, so you know, how fast those things will happen, uh, I don't think anybody can really predict. But I think we can, I can say pretty confidently that there will continue to be at least slow to moderate growth uh, in, in these types of models uh, over the next 10 years. Yes, I, I think 
based on what you say, uh, I think we can predict that uh, how it will evolve will depend on how the incentive stru structures and the, the finances of medicine uh, change or don't change. Exactly. Well, yeah. Do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? Well, I, th I think that, um, you know, many listeners may not be familiar with these types of models. Um, and um, one of the things, regardless of, you know, particularly if they're a patient, um, you know, they, they need to search out uh, pharmacists and pharmacies that can provide the types of services, whether they be, you know, proper uh, utilization of medications and, and how best to take them, because those pharmacies are out there uh, if they, they search them out. If they're physicians and, and, you know, aren't in a capacity to utilize these kinds of services, there certainly are uh, in, in, all, in, in many medium to larger size communities, in some small communities, um, pharmacists who, uh, who have developed collaborative relationships from a distance with physicians and work very, very closely with them and have established, you know, overcome some of these distance barriers. So that's still, still a possibility that, that uh, that can be explored, even for those physicians that aren't able to uh, to put a put a pharmacist uh, uh, in in their office. And for those listeners who might be responsible for health plans and and health plan development, I think that uh, the future for reducing costs in those health health plans and improving the quality of care uh, is going to be a wide variety of team-based care strategies. Makes more sense to utilize the lower-cost expert whenever possible. Yes. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, you're very welcome. As Dr. Carter points out, as our health system evolves, it's going to be moving towards a more of a team-based approach that will involve multiple different health professionals in our care, and pharmacists are just one of those types of physicians. And this is largely going to be driven by the cost of care as well as efforts to improve quality by bringing to bear um, healthcare providers uh, who have different uh, forms of expertise to address problems in the most efficient possible way. Dr. Carter's work on the use of pharmacists to help improve blood pressure control is one great example of this. Um, in, in my field of expertise, I, I would think the pharmacists can play an important role to play not only in assuring that patients are getting uh, medications that are appropriate for themselves, but also in encouraging patients to use their medication better. We'll have to see as the financial incentives in our system change how this will all pan out. If you're interested in learning more about pharmacists, Dr. Uh, Carter uh, gave me uh, information on several pharmacy organizations that can give you more uh, information, and I'll give you links to those on the Getting Better Healthcare website on webtalkradio.net. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, next week, we'll be talking about changes in the insurance system and how to design it better so that our health system um, will be of lower cost and will work more efficiently. Uh, our theme music is by the incomparable Michael Zioli. Getting Better Healthcare has been brought to you in part by Leo Pharma. Until next time, I wish you the best of health. Thanks for listening to the show today. Remember to go to DrScore.com to get and give feedback about your doctor and to read others' recommendations about doctors in your area. It's a way to choose your path to healthcare empowerment. That's D-R-S-C-O-R-E.com.
drscore.com. And we'll see you next week right here on Getting Better Healthcare.